A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on October 21st, 2020. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and our guest this week is Dr. Judy Ho, who is a clinical and forensic neuropsychologist. We are so happy to have you back. You are a friend of the show, and you always have wonderful insight into why people do the things they do. Thank you so much, Anna. It's always wonderful to be with you, and you look beautiful. I'm ready to dive into today's stories. Oh, thank you. Okay, we've got a lot going on. So we have two really interesting cases to get into. Plus, we have an update on a double homicide from the Coachella Valley, which we covered on the podcast back in July. We'll have that update a little later in the episode. So our two main cases today. A former Idaho gubernatorial candidate has been indicted on murder and kidnapping charges, but this is in connection with the murder and disappearance of a 12-year-old girl back in 1984. It's an unbelievable case, and it has a potential bizarre connection to John Benet Ramsey. Okay, I'll leave you with that. But first, we're going to be talking about Sydney Sutherland. She's a 25-year-old woman from Arkansas, and she disappeared on August 19th. She went out for a run. Judy, I cannot tell you how many cases I have covered of women who took off for a jog and were murdered. I swear to you, it is the scariest thing. Every time I see someone running, that's all I think about. You know what's scary, Anna, is I run every day. So every time we hear one of these stories, uh, it always scares me too. Uh, I don't I, I don't know what it is about that, why there is a sense of vulnerability when you have like an incredibly strong woman running, right? Oh. Any, anyway, what's interesting here is that she caught her alleged killer's attention while she was on the run. It's almost as if everything happened because of that. A newly released probable cause affidavit in her death alleges the 28-year-old Quake Llewellyn rammed Sydney with his pickup truck, and then he threw her in the back of the pickup, drove off, and then sexually assaulted her before burying her. So what's also crazy here is that, all right, it's horrendous to kill a human being without question, right? But the affidavit alleges that this guy then joined Facebook groups to help find her, and then he actually participated in the search to find her. What kind of person would do that, right? I mean, it's a completely devious person to basically try to put together this idea that somehow he cares about this person when he's actually the one responsible for her rape and murder. And they did know each other. So I think it kind of seems like it would be plausible that he might want to get in on the search. Like, hey, I know this person. She's kind of an acquaintance of mine. Let me help out. Well, I wonder, because they lived in this really tiny community, it's about 1,700 people, that he would have actually drawn more attention to himself by not participating in the search for the town girl who's missing. Mm, you're right. And I think 
it's all about trying to be a good neighbor and putting up that front. And I think whenever these things happen in small towns, and I know you've covered a lot of stories like this, it really shakes the entire community because everybody feels like they know everybody. They know, feel like they're family, basically. And then when something like this happens, I can see how scary it can be for everybody who lives there and thinking about their own lives. Oh, absolutely. And everything basically took place over the course of two days from the time of her disappearance until the time that they found her body and that they arrested Quake. So let's look at what happened. So it was August 19th of this year, and Sydney Sutherland went for a jog in Newport, Arkansas, and she never returned home. She shared a home with her boyfriend. So clearly, they knew when was the last time that she was at home. What's really interesting is that Sydney's home has a ring video doorbell. So there is video of Sydney preparing and taking off for her run. So we know what time she left the house. And then as she was on her run, a UPS driver, because again, this is a really small town. You know, you always know who delivers your packages without question, right? The UPS driver spots Sydney somewhere between 2.30 and 3 p.m. So we know she was still alive up until about that time. So when she didn't come home, investigators quickly began searching and they searched through the night. Local police were joined by Arkansas State Police and the FBI. They used helicopters and search dogs. They searched until two in the morning and then they resumed at daybreak. And then two days later, her body was found. Okay. Now, the probable cause affidavit that was filed last week provides details about what happened in the last few hours of Sydney's life. So, Apparently, Quake, the suspect here, works on his family's farm. And he said when they finally arrested him, this is what he said. He told the cops that after he saw her jogging, he made a U-turn, went back to her, rammed her, right? So really injured her. In fact, the, the cause of death was blunt force trauma, which is unclear whether that was from the truck or whether he further beat her. And then he, you know, he takes her body, which we don't know whether she was dead at the time or she was definitely, you know, probably not conscious. She, then he rapes her and buries her in a field. And this all happened within a few miles of where everybody lives. Anna, I wonder if you think hearing these details, if this feels like something that wasn't fully planned out, because not only did he do kind of a shoddy job hiding the body. I mean, it did find this very quickly. I know that there was a lot of effort, but still there's lots of cases that go unsolved for months and years and maybe forever. And also this whole idea of a U-turn ramming her and then going forward with this horrible sexual assault, either before or after she was fully dead. It just feels a little bit like this was a bit of an impulse, even if maybe he's thought about doing something like this for a time. This particular incident to me feels a little bit like maybe it was not really premeditated that well. What do you think? I really can't wrap myself around this one because I'm trying to figure out whether it was a fit of anger when he turned around and rammed her because he wanted to kill her. And then once he had her, I guess, subdued, if you will, then he decided, well, you know, I'm, I'm now I will have more violence on top of violence and I will rape her. Or if the intention was when he saw her was, that's it, I, I'm going to rape her. That, that's what I can't figure out. What was, 
what happened? Something clicked in his brain, right? Mm-hmm. Now, when that happens with someone, I mean, you know, we talk about this all the time, how people claim about, um, you know, they were temporarily insane. They, um, mm-hmm. They're mentally ill. I don't mm-hmm. know what to make of this one. Right, because I haven't seen that he has an extensive record of any type, and maybe we'll find out more, but certainly nothing violent and certainly nothing that he was prosecuted for. And I do wonder if substances were involved, perhaps, maybe a untreated mental illness. Um, and, you know, most, almost all mentally ill individuals are not dangerous, but Every once in a blue moon, you get that person who's having a psychotic episode and they're hearing voices in their head telling them to do something that's actually completely out of character for them. And so I I still leave the door open for those types of explanations and especially certain types of substances like cocaine and other stimulants. It does lead to a huge surge of aggression and violence in individuals who generally are not that way. So I don't know about this one, but it just seems like it's kind of poorly planned out and unprecedented, at least from what we know about this person. So it's it's possible that they may not be able to truly get him on murder one, on um, premeditation. What's also interesting is, again, it's a small town in Arkansas, and Sydney was absolutely stunning. Just a beautiful mm. woman with fabulous long blonde hair. She was very athletic. She was just a healthy, healthy woman. So... You know, definitely, if you saw her running down the street, if you had fantasized about her for a long time, she's just a beautiful, beautiful human being. You know, there's just everything about her. I mean, if you look at her photos, there's nothing but light emanating from her. So I just, I just wonder, I just wonder, you know, my guess is she's always been the the beautiful girl in town, right? She's just stunning. And it sounds like she's beautiful inside and out. And the registered nurse at Unity Health Harris Medical Center, and she had just passed her boards, which means that she was going to be able to serve even more people. And she just had such a bright future, it sounds like. And I'm just devastated for her and her boyfriend and her family members who they would have never thought something like this could happen to her in such a small community in Arkansas where they probably thought she's safe. She's with her extended family members and friends. And it's going to be very difficult because Quake's family runs a a very prominent farm there in the community. So everybody knows everybody. These families know each other. So now you have, you know, something that's really going to divide up a very small town to begin with, right? Um, I, I, uh, now there is further evidence linking him to Sydney. It wasn't just him admitting it, but what they did was they managed to track, they got, they found Sydney's phone, not by her, but somewhere else. They kind of found the phone. Um, before they found Sydney is what I'm trying to say. And then they matched up Sydney's GPS to Quake's GPS, and they found that they overlapped at the time of the assault and where she was buried. So that's going to be incriminating. We don't know anything about DNA evidence yet, obviously. What's interesting is uh, the authorities say that after he was read his Miranda rights is when he admitted to the murder and told them what he did and how he did it. They wouldn't have gotten the whole U-turn and then I rammed her. That came from him. So we'll we'll see how how this further plays out. I think, you know, as the sheriff said, they knew each other, but it's unclear how well they knew each other and how they knew each other. It's a small town. So clearly, he, you know, everybody knows each other. 
The phone was found about 1.3 miles from her home, her phone, so not too far. And then her body was discovered in basically a deserted field like farmland. Authorities managed to cross-reference all of the GPS information, which again makes Quake the most probable suspect, especially now that he says that he did it. I think the one thing that the cops have not been able to give us in any way is why he joined the search party. Mm -hmm. And just one more thing. Sometimes when people do that, and I don't know whether Quake was clever enough, but it's to get people off into a different direction that doesn't implicate them. Not just that they're doing the right thing and participating. Hey, look at me. I'm a good guy. But leading the search party in a different in a different direction to try and buy time to figure out if he was going to try and move her or do something else. You know, you're right. And I think that that part really doesn't make sense. And yet at the same time, I have a theory that there may have been an amount of guilt that people sometimes feel, even when it is premeditated, sometimes people after the fact feel guilty and weirdly they'll act helpful, even though they know that it's not going to lead anywhere good it's their guilt that drives them to do these things that it's not easy to explain. And I also have to say, Anna, I love these stories of technology justice. I mean, the iPhone was not invented to bust criminals, but we hear these stories and other stories you've covered too. And I just love when they're able to put that together. And it's like a no mess type of forensic evidence, right? You just look at this app on the iPhone, the location services application, you match them up. I mean, it's undeniable. That's the only person that crossed paths with her during this period of time. And I do just have to wonder when he joined the search, he, mu he must have known something about this. He, he must have known his phone was on. I don't know, maybe he's not that sophisticated and thought about it. But that's why I was thinking, is there some weird guilt that he was feeling? And again, maybe at the pressure of family and friends in the community, maybe they even asked, hey, are you going to come with us? Because we're going to go join this search. Well, what would his answer be, especially to people that he actually cares about and loves, people who are part of his inner circle do Doing this for this woman. I covered a murder case of a young girl who ultimately was killed by her boyfriend at the time and his friend. And um, she, she had, you know, her body had been dumped and there was a massive search party. And because he was the boyfriend of, they were young, they were teenagers. Mm -hmm. He helped to truly spearhead the search. And he was with the girl's mother the whole time being the dutiful boyfriend and again, being active in the search. And I cannot tell you how betrayed the mother felt later on when this kid is arrested and she's like, he stood here in my kitchen and he, you know, he tried to comfort me. It was like you had the devil in your presence. And I, and, and believe me, she, the, what she's truly upset about is what he did to the daughter. But then to further manipulate the mother at the time of this grief and her vulnerability was just like salt rubbed into that wound. Oh, and I can see how the family uh, could actually feel this way. Why were you even there? I mean, perhaps they even talked to him. We don't know those details. Maybe, maybe they even thanked him for his efforts. I mean, can you imagine that, that, that feeling of, I thanked the person who murdered my daughter. 
you know, I think that that's just another piece of the trauma that this community, especially her family, but the entire community has to deal with, especially as you mentioned, his family has a prominent farm here. So it's like having to live that trauma over and over and over again. And how do these people find closure? That's going to be the difficult thing for this entire community. Right. And the question that always will be asked is why? Why? Mm -hmm. Why? Which we can rarely ever answer. Rarely. So he is being held at the Randolph County Jail, which is about 50 miles away from Jackson County, where he ordinarily would be held. And he was transferred supposedly for safety reasons. Small town. A lot of people probably want to exert some of their own justice on him. So Quake is charged with capital murder, rape, kidnapping, and abuse of a corpse. We'll see what more we find out as that case continues. In our next case, a politician is charged with the murder of a 12-year-old girl. This is a case that had been unsolved since 1984. It's a very bizarre set of facts and also the people involved. A Colorado grand jury has indicted a former Idaho gubernatorial candidate on murder and kidnapping charges in connection with the 1984 disappearance and death of 12-year-old Janelle Matthews in Greeley, which is about an hour north of Denver. I don't even know where to begin with this. Let's just get to a few of the simple facts, and then we're going to do a deep dive. Stephen Hankey, who is 69 years old, has been indicted on counts of first-degree murder and second-degree kidnapping with a weapon. Okay, so, so what happened is that the little girl disappeared in 1984. And so it was basically an unsolved case until 2019 when her body was found. Can you imagine? And she was found about, you know, 20 miles away from home, not that far. So her remains were discovered by some guys working on a pipeline in Colorado. Their work, it was like an oil and gas site. And she was found, her body was found in July of 2019. She went missing from the, from the home just days before Christmas. It was the night of December 20th, 1984. She had been singing in the Christmas concert downtown that night and she was dropped off at her home by friends of the family now her parents were not home when she was dropped off because they were at her sister's basketball game that night mm. so that's why you know there's a time frame in there where we know what time she was dropped off and then when the parents came home from the basketball game they found that she she was missing she was long gone and what they didn't know Judy was did the 12-year-old run away, or was she abducted? Did someone break in? There, I mean, for, for decades, the family had no idea what happened. And here's what the father said. He said that it was weird. The television was on. Mm. The heater by the couch was on. It was cold. It was December in Colorado. Mm. Her shoes were there as if she had taken them off after her concert, right? but her slippers were missing hmm. and, and there were no, no signs of a struggle. Really. It didn't seem like anyone had broken in. It was unclear. 1984. We really were not um, advanced as far as DNA technology. So it was a mystery. What happened to Janelle? She just disappeared. So for decades, 
no one knew what happened. And then in the immediate, I really want to talk about her before we get to him, because we really need to understand and have some compassion here um, and then look at who is accused of doing this. So immediately the community formed the Janelle committee. Basically, they put up flyers, ribbons, everything you could think of. And I don't know how many people even remember this, depending on your age, but um, about that time is when they started putting the pictures of missing and abducted children on the side of milk cartons. And it's it's something that was done because, think about it, there was no social media. So the milk carton was your social media. Every time you poured the milk, you saw that girl's picture or that boy's picture, and you were reminded that this child was missing where and when they were abducted. And hers was one of the first faces that was on the side of a milk carton. Oh. You know, the whole world was looking for her. The whole world was looking for her. So... It's interesting that at the time of her disappearance, this video was not released. And we're going to show it now because it's, you know, it's always about the victims and their families. And nothing nothing uh, touches a heart like seeing and hearing someone, especially a child. So five years ago, d- detectives decided, let's look into this case. Remember, she's been missing since 1984. Her family moved away. So the Greeley police decided that right before Christmas, literally on December 20th, the same day that she disappeared, but this time in 2018, they were going to release the video of the concert where she was singing that night, where she was last seen alive, right? And so they released this video, and I mean, when you look at it now, we're going to play a clip. Keep in mind, it's very old videotape, but she's on the um, staircase, right, all lined up with the children, and she's singing, and then the police just circle her so you can see which one she is. I mean, the place is packed with children. We're going to play that clip now. Anyway, when I saw that video last night, it completely changed everything for me because she's so cute and innocent oh she is and she looks so happy and i can't imagine what her family felt because in some ways they were almost hoping that maybe she just ran away right because what's the other alternative but she's not the kind of person who would run away she seemed happy in her home she was in this choir she had a nice life. It didn't sound like this was a very conflictual family at all. So yeah. I'm sure and it was, I'm sorry, but it was Christmas, right? So this is like the happiest time for kids. It's five days away from Christmas and presents. In fact, you know, as the days progressed and Christmas came, there were all these presents under the tree for her. Right. Presents she's never opened, will never open. I, I can't even imagine what Christmas is like for this family, right? Because it's always on this anniversary that they're going to remember the tragedy of their daughter disappearing and never knowing what happened to her. Okay, now let's get into who is now accused of having kidnapped her and murdered her. So remember, her remains were found in 2019, and it is at that point when they found her remains and they positively identified her and, you know, the um, 
her parents were finally able to bury her. There's this amazing photo. There weren't a lot of remains, obviously, um, but they were given to the family, and the mother and father put it in the tiniest of little coffins. Oh. And they buried her properly, respectfully. And in fact, you know, her body was found 18 miles away from her home in this shallow grave. Oh, my God, Judy. She was still wearing the Christmas outfit that you saw in the video for the concert. Oh. Tattered, just bits of fabric left, her red blouse, that little vest that she was wearing, and her skirt. Oh, my Lord, I'm getting upset. Okay, so at this point, the Greenlee police decide to reveal publicly that they have a person of interest. Now, they've had this guy on the radar for a long time because of the actions which they recently released. Over the years, he did a lot of really bizarre things. Okay, bizarre is not necessarily criminal, but in this case, it's all connected to Janelle. All of it. So, um... Her remains are found, and they publicly say, all right, this is suspect number one. Okay, so who is this guy? He ran for governor of Ohio twice, once as a Republican in 2018, and then four years earlier as a Constitution Party candidate. The, the reason I, I want to tell you a little bit about him is that um, he ended up, he and his family ended up moving away from Greenlee after this happened. He claimed that he was home that night, the night that she was abducted, and he was never really considered a suspect at that point, but again, he was on police radar for a long time because of the actions that he allegedly took. He, he's very public. He's said a lot of things publicly, so not casting any judgment here, but these are the things that he has said about himself over the years, because remember, when you run for office, everything is revealed. So Panky told several news organizations that he calls himself, quote, a celibate homosexual who was attacked and harassed because of his sexuality. He says he was kicked out of the army because of it. And then he says, I repented and then I left the homosexual life in 1976. <laughs> Does that sound like someone who's dealing with some repressed feelings here? Yes, and also he claims that this is the history of his family, which is actually a very religious family, but that his family was basically, in his words, filled with homosexuals. And he also said, in all indications, that his father was a workaholic and basically gave very little attention to his children. His father was a pastor, and unbelievably, the narcissistic tendencies of this man basically wrote an autobiography of himself that seemed like it was mixing some truth with fantasy, but he used real names of people and he was a character, a main character in his book. And this is where some of these details were coming out. So this is a person who was obviously obsessed with himself because maybe as a child, he didn't get that love and nurturance from his parents that he so craved. And now he's just basically running amok, doing whatever the heck he wants. It's very strange. And he lived just two miles from Janelle's house. Now, that doesn't mean anything, but it certainly places him in very in close proximity to her home and the abduction. So when police revealed that they suspected Panky, um, Panky sat down and he did do a lot of interviews. But the most telling one is the one he did with the Colorado Sun. 
and and again, other numerous organizations, news organizations. And he has said all along that he had nothing to do with Janelle's disappearance or murder. But here are some of the bizarre things that he told the newspaper and other news organizations, which we must share. Panky claims that the family friend, the one who dropped off Janelle that night after the Christmas concert is an enemy of his, right? Is an enemy of Panky's because back in the 70s when Panky was trying to unionize the 7-Up bottling plant, this guy attacked him. So he's immediately pointing police in direction of, oh, you better look at the guy who dropped her off because he's probably the one who did it. Okay, well, maybe all that is true, right? Then he tells the Colorado Sun that he was kicked out of the same church that Janelle's family attended after he was accused of raping the church piano player. But the charges were later dropped because he passed a polygraph test. Who is this guy? And you know what, Anna? I have heard of other convicted criminals passing the polygraph test. And the problem with the polygraph test and why it's not widely admissible in court is because the people that you definitely want to catch tend to be the ones that pass because we have found neurobiological research that shows that people who are psychopaths and serial murderers, their brain activity is just very weirdly kind of more stable than the average person so that when they lie and when they tell the truth, their brain activity looks kind of the same. They're able to lie and not start sweating or start shaking or have big changes in their brain waves. So you think, oh, well, this person, I guess, is telling the truth. This is not the first time something like this happened. And that actually scares me even more about this particular person and all the things that he was able to get away with before this crime. That's really interesting. So when the person is such a pathological liar, their lies are the truth. And therefore, physically, there's no indication that they're lying. Absolutely. And what we find, too, is that because their brain activity tends to be, in general, lower overall than the normal human being, that they need more things to stimulate them. And this also shows why sometimes they can do these horrible, egregious things, kill somebody, hide the body in the woods, and then just saunter off whistling, going to get McDonald's and watching a movie because they are not that activated, even in the most extreme of circumstances. So it's not like they're freaking out. They're not really in a fight or flight situation the way that we might be if we were just witnesses to something like that. Now, this is the one that I find the most interesting, just only because it's intriguing to me, because we're talking about Colorado here. Mm. When John Bonet Ramsey disappeared and then was later found murdered, this all happened around Christmas. Panky calls the police to remind them that Janelle's case also happened at Christmas. And this is way before her body was ever found, right? Remember, this little girl's body hasn't been found. Janelle wasn't found until 2019. Mm. Okay, so who sits there looking at the incredible John JonBenet Ramsey case and all the headlines and says, oh, this sounds just like this case, Janelle's case? Okay. Yes. All right. I don't want I don't look. And of course, there are some similarities here. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. It's Colorado. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but I do find it interesting that this all took place in Colorado. That's all I'm going to say. And just very creepy. All right. Then Panky tells the Colorado son that he willingly gave the Greenlee police a sample of his DNA. Well, the police said officially, we never asked him for a sample of the DNA. So why put that out there? 
why, why, why would you put that out there? Isn't it weird that over the many years that this investigation was actually either active or obviously clearly unsolved, that he just kept inserting himself into this case in various ways as a person of interest. It was like he wanted to get caught or that he was taunting the police, maybe like, even though I'm giving you all of these clues, you're still never going to solve the mystery. I, I don't know what kind of person does this, but we do know that he has this huge long history of also accusing other people of all kinds of things. So as you said, while he was inserting himself as a person of interest, he was also blaming this other person who dropped off Danelle and saying that she was he was an enemy of his. But throughout the years, he had made lots of harassing calls to other people, blamed police, blamed the military, blamed church people. I mean, there's so many things that just don't add up about this guy. And he really had a very long history of not getting with people to say the least. Absolutely. In fact, all these comments that he made to the investigating authorities became part of the case against him. Here's a clip from a news conference when they announced his indictment. There are a number of statements that he has made over the course of time, uh, both to courts, to law enforcement, to in unsolicited letters, in which he indicates some very intimate knowledge about um, the commission of the crime, information that uh, the general public and the media was not privy to. What I find interesting is that the authorities say that while he was annoying and constantly contacting the cops about this case, he had information, they say, that no one else could know, that the police didn't release, so the public and the media couldn't have known some of the bizarre things he was saying. So while he may have been pointing the finger in other directions, he was revealing information supposedly that he had nobody else did. And what is so striking about this case, Anna, is that because this case is older in terms of how much time has passed since Jamel has been missing, we have a ton of information on Panky. And he actually is this textbook case in terms of the kind of person who becomes a serial criminal or serial killer. He has all of these warning signs all along the way. And it's just incredible that somehow he didn't end up in prison for something else before finally having this case solved just now. According to the indictment, he allegedly took Janelle Matthews from her home on that night sometime between 8.30 and 9.30. They're able to zero in on that time frame. So at some point, the authorities say that not only did he kidnap her, but that he shot her in the head. So we know how she was killed. And clearly that is something you would know from her remains. The indictment reveals, again, that Panky intentionally inserted himself into the investigation numerous times over the year, over the years, claiming to have knowledge of the crime and how all of this became so inconsistent that it started attracting attention to himself. Like he created his own problems. Had he just moved away and shut up, it's possible, it's possible that no one ever would have looked at him, right? Right. But he constantly is like, oh, hey, I'm over here and I have information. So in some ways, that's a blessing for if he really did do it, that, that he did help police get to him. So in September of 2019, authorities say they served a search warrant on Panky's Twin Falls, Idaho home. He had They had search warrants for the home and all the vehicles. 
And when they served it, he knew why they were there because of the probable cause on the search warrant was that they believed he had kidnapped and killed Janelle. So he knew in 2019 he was prime suspect number one. He was arrested in Idaho. Now, what's interesting is, remember, this guy continues, well, maybe not now behind bars, but up until the time he was arrested, he kept talking about this case and doing so many interviews that one of his attorneys, and I don't know if it's the same attorney now because, you know, he's not the easiest guy to um, represent, shall we say? His attorney says that there is no physical evidence linking him to the murder. And that might be very interesting in this case. Is there or isn't there DNA evidence? We don't know that, right? We right. don't know that. And But the attorney admitted that Panky does like to talk to the media a lot. And But this was his defense of his client. He said, even though he talks a lot, he really doesn't say anything of substance. And that's because he didn't do it. Wow. That's an interesting defense, especially because in his indictment, there were a number of incriminating statements that were very highly specific, not to mention that he had been repeatedly searching for information about Janelle on the Internet himself and then tried to delete all this evidence after the Greeley detectives contacted him earlier in 2019. So it's almost like Anna... Any attention is good attention, if you've ever heard of that phrase. And if this person was starved for attention as a kid, maybe he kept inserting himself and giving these crumbs that I believe are actually very significant because he was almost like, please look at me. It's almost like he wanted to be connected to this. He wanted to make sure that his name was coming up in the papers and eventually the internet as obviously the world grew and more technologically advanced. Well, as I watched all these videos, you know, these interviews he did with the local TV stations that were covering this case in Colorado, I, I'm like, um, he's sitting there, you know, all casual, like answering questions and like, no, I didn't do it. Most people who are implicated in something as serious as murder don't sit around ever so casually Yes. Discussing it like, you know, but then again, in his mind, if he doesn't think he did anything wrong, he might be like, hey, I'm going to keep talking because I didn't do anything. Or he's like, finally, my 15 minutes of fame. And as you know, Anna, you know, the more that we do have widespread coverage, because now the news does travel so quickly the more he maybe is in love with that idea. Like, wow, not only am I going to be covered on the local news, I might also make it into an article on the internet. And he might actually revel in that a little bit. It's kind of gross, but I, I do wonder if that, that was a piece of it. I mean, think about this guy with a history of running for public office, believing that he could actually be somebody who would be voted into office. I mean, again, just these bizarre ideas of maybe grandiosity that he was more important and special than perhaps other people think he is. Well, clearly he is a sick individual and I am not a um, certified therapist as you are, <laughs> but he's definitely a weirdo. And oh. if, he did, if he did do this, um, I hope that there is justice for Janelle's family. We have an update on a story that we covered on the podcast back in July. Audrey Moran, 26, of the Coachella Valley and Jonathan Reynoso of Palm Desert, California, were last seen on May 10th of 2017. Well, in June, when the authorities believed that they had found, they knew they had found remains, they weren't sure whose remains they were, but they thought that it belonged to Audrey and to Jonathan. This, the, the, the cops just didn't say a lot in the Coachella Valley. But finally, last week, 
The sheriff's department confirmed that the DNA results came back as a match for the couple. The victim's family members posted on social media, and you have to, if you're not familiar with this case, the family was very active in trying to find them because basically for three years, it's like this beautiful young couple just poof, disappeared. Car on the side of the road, and they just disappeared. Nothing, not a peep, nothing. So clearly... Everyone suspected something terrible had happened to them. So the victim's family members posted on social media, Today we have received the long-awaited call on DNA confirmation. Our Audrey has been found. It's a match. It's a match for Jonathan. That's what his mom posted on Facebook. Three men are accused of their murders and they are in custody, but authorities have not revealed a possible motive in that case. We just wanted to let everyone know it is indeed Audrey and Jonathan. Mm. So moving on to our comments section. Boy, we got some doozies today. A rapper who bragged in a music video about getting rich off unemployment benefits has been arrested for filing fake claims worth $1.2 million. Oh, my God. So Funtrell Baines, also known as Nuke Bizzle, that's his rapper name, was arrested in Las Vegas, and now he faces federal charges of fraud. He allegedly used stolen identities to apply for numerous unemployment benefits. Cops say that he used 92 debit cards that were loaded with the unemployment money and totaling $1.2 million. Now, I looked at his uh, music video, and so there he is, you know, rapping about um, collecting from EDD and he's got envelopes of claims and he's going on and on. And it, by the way, the name of the video is EDD and you can find it on YouTube. So it's got lyrics like, I got rich off EDD. You got to sell cocaine. I just file a claim. Not <laughs> that, Anna. All right. I mean, I, at least he's not doing drugs. I, I don't know. Is that is that the takeaway here? I mean, this is crazy. And also, obviously, this is happening all over uh, the country. There are other issues with people uh, filing fake claims. But what kind of person then makes it into a music video and shows everybody what he did? Exactly. You know, uh, you're basically taunting the authorities to mm. come after you, right? Now, okay. It was a funny video, whatever, you know, it's music, it's, it's parody. But the problem is that he was so stupid <laughs> to then put this in a video while he was really doing it. If he wasn't really doing it, then it'd be a whole different story. But according to the authorities, he really was. If convicted, he faces up to 22 years in prison for these charges. Okay, here are the comments. Mary C. writes, L-M-A-O Stupid, got away with the claims, but turned around and bragged about it. I can't. Yep. Abigail S., whenever I think I'm really stupid, there's always something to remind me I'm not the only one. <laughs> and then and PJT writes, now they're about to nuke his bank account and his earnings. That's right. Yeah. Bizzle is getting nuked. So Sorry. I... Sorry. Very, very good. And you know what? It, it When you think that some people can't get more ridiculous. Here's something that shows you maybe there is no limit. And uh, I really hope justice gets served here because that's just taking advantage of really vulnerable people who might actually need this money. Yes. And you know what? 
What's going to happen, though, Judy? He's just going to become famous now. Because if you had no idea who Nuke Bizzle was before, now you will, right? So he's just going to be like this urban legend celebrity. Ah, well, then he can enjoy his 15 minutes of fame while he is in prison. That's true. A Florida man uses a barcode of a 24-cent Kool-Aid packet to ring up all his purchases at a Walmart. So if you're listening and you can't see me, he basically took the packet and the barcode and he cupped it on the inside of his hand. So every time he's at the, you know, self-checkout and he's pretending like he's actually scanning an item, the only barcode that is visible to the cash register is the barcode that he has cupped in his hand that is worth 24 cents. So essentially everything he rung up was 24 cents. Well, turns out that he rang up a total of, this is not what it came to, but the value of the goods that he rang up on the self-checkout line was $994, but he only paid $24. <laughs> what a coupon. <laughs> That's crazy to me. I mean, have you ever used a self-checkout? There's actually like a scale. So right. Things that you ring up have to match the scale. So does Walmart not have this installed? Because if they don't, they need to install that. I mean, well, I think Judy, what he was doing is that he would take the item and I'll use this, this, my, my water jug here. He took the item. He had the Kool-Aid packet here. So while he's, and he's making sure to hide the, the label or the, you know, the, the barcode, excuse me, on the item. So he's moving the items over, right? But what is actually physically being scanned and registered is the little packet of Kool-Aid. So the items are moving and the weight is all matching, but the prices are not. Now, oh. Judy, they were watching him because okay. a loss prevention officer was watching Bradley Young mm -hmm. do this. Because clearly, when you have $900 worth of items, it's unless you've got just one giant television or two, do you know what I mean? That it's something's going to look weird. Like you're mm -hmm. going to have a basket full of a lot of stuff, yet it says $24 on, on the register total, right? Mm. Yes. So he was kind of clever the way he had it all worked out, right? Moving and keeping the weights going, hiding the original barcode, and only using the one that was hidden in his hand to scan the items. Well, he is now facing grand theft and shoplifting charges. There you go. He didn't, he didn't get away. I don't even think he got out of the store. <laughs> Good loss prevention officer. I also love that title for a job, loss prevention officer. It's like, mm -hmm. let me catch all the criminals who try to steal from Walmart. I mean, can't you? I always think of the Kool-Aid commercial with that giant pitcher with the smiley face on it coming toward you. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. So these are the comments. Laura L. writes, yet I try to return something that I actually bought from Walmart with a receipt and they treat me like a criminal. It's true. <laughs> Sometimes when you're trying to return something, you're so hassled. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's true. Simone J. writes, well, do away with self-checkout and hire more cashiers, create more jobs for people. Okay, I have to admit, I hate the self-checkout line myself. I really do. <laughs> mm. And then Joey W., easy defense in court. All you got to say is that you aren't an employee, therefore you were not trained on how to use the self-checkout properly, LOL. <laughs> Probably not going to fly. Probably not going to fly. And then our last comment Julene B. 
This is what happens when a company expects customers to check themselves out. There's, there's definitely, there's a very strong feeling out there on keeping jobs going with cashiers. Obviously, had there been a cashier there, he could have never attempted this. Absolutely. Yep. And he probably scouted this out. I mean, like, like we talked about, it was kind of pre-planned. He had an idea of what he was going to do and try to get away with. And if there wasn't such a self-checkout, he was not going to try to do it, at least at this store. And you know, what's weird is that ordinarily when I think of Kool-Aid, I never think of just one and Walmart, which is everything is big, right? And over the top and voluminous of, of everything. I, I can he just managed to find that one little packet of Kool-Aid for 24 cents. I know. Well, I mean, I, I guess this must have been in some kind of like under 99 cents bin or something. But like you said, that is just not typical for Walmart. So, you know, he almost got away with it. This was, you know, brilliant until it wasn't brilliant, basically. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, that's it for our program this week. Thank you so much, Judy, for joining us. You're always like a ray of sunshine and such insight into these cases, into the minds of these criminals. Oh, thank you, Anna. I always love working with you and always look forward to when we can get together and talk about some of these head scratchers. I mean, seriously, every time you guys bring just the most compelling cases, it's like you still have to think about it and say, I've never heard this aspect before, you know? And it's, unfortunately, these cases just don't stop. There's so many of them. No, no. A world pandemic and, and craziness does not stop them. The crimes have continued. Judy, if people want to follow you, where can they find you on social media? Well, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Judy Ho. That's D-R-J-U-D-Y-H-O. And to learn more about my work and my book, you can go to drjudyho.com. And I highly recommend following Judy on Instagram because I have to tell you, you and your posts, they, they just lift my spirits because you're so funny. You're dancing, but at the same time you're dancing, you've got all these great little graphics that you're pointing to. And every day you have a new reminder of how you're going to get through the day or how to be positive or how to deal with negative energy. You're absolutely adorable. And I love following you. Oh, thank you, Anna. And I love following you. We have some fun on Instagram. I feel like I know what you're up to because I see your posts. I'm like, oh, I know what Anna did this weekend. <laughs> it's never very exciting, people. If you're going to follow me, I'm at Anna G News, Anna with one N on all social media platforms. But usually I just post pictures of my chihuahuas, of the birds in the fountain, of the pizza I may have made that day. Uh, not an awful lot of crime stuff. And I do, as you know, I read your comments on YouTube in particular or wherever you decide to interact with me. There's, I have just got to share this one funny thing from Twitter. One of our listeners, watchers, we had um, a case on last week where deputies in a jail are accused of like torturing the prisoners by making them listen to a song, <laughs> a kid's song. <laughs> <laughs> about sharks it's hilarious anyway on on twitter he took a clip from our from our episode and he cut in the lyrics of the song anyway i do see these things i do laugh i have a sense of humor and i appreciate it and i always appreciate to hear your comments and what you all are thinking in reaction to the cases that we're highlighting as always you can find our content on um, Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And of course, you can watch us on YouTube, get updates and subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.